All Things Unexplained, hosted by Dr. Mounts. Let's face it, we were always ready to roll without him anyway. <laughs> CJ Derringer. Ain't nobody perfect, right? And Smitty Neves. I've never planned out hardly anything my whole life. I just free ball. Featuring Cajun Man. I'm just old nobody, somebody looking for somebody. Welcome, everybody, to the first NAP conference on cryptozoology, brought to you by Corn Wincon. I'm so excited to be here. So excited to have these panelists here. My name is Dr. Mounts. I am an author, a podcaster, a professor. I'd like to tell everybody what our objective is here tonight with the first NAP conference on cryptozoology. Our objective is this, from television shows to festivals to books and everywhere in between, cryptozoology has never been a more popular cultural phenomenon than right now. Our objective with this first NAP conference on cryptozoology is to address outstanding, preeminent, open questions in the emerging scientific field of cryptozoology. I'd like to ask our listeners to be thinking about something and start commenting here. In one word, what comes to mind, and I'll get our panelist interpretation of this momentarily, in one word, listeners, what comes to mind when some you hear someone say cryptozoology? In one word, what comes to mind when you hear someone say cryptozoology? The panelist and I were actually talking about this briefly before we went live. But now I'd like to welcome our panelists. First off, I have an award-winning horror writer and musician. His newest book is called Razor's Edge. It is an origin story of one Freddy Krueger. I believe I've got that right. He's also the author of Fathom, a Loch Ness monster story. I'd like to welcome to the panel of experts tonight, Blake Best. Blake, welcome. Thank you for having me. That was an amazing little introduction. I could could just have you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did I get that right about Razor's Edge? Is that a a Freddy Krueger origin story? It, it is. This is the second time it came out. That book has the unique distinction of being one of the most expensive books on Amazon. I had a fan uh, send me a message about a year or two ago, and I went on there to look, and it's selling for $2,000 a copy, and I don't even own one, and I wrote it. So I was like, you find it, jump on it, my friend, because I sure don't have it. But I put it out again. <laughs> I've got it here with a new cover. So I actually think it's a, the, the cover art's a lot more interesting, you know? Oh, I love it. Oh yeah, I love it. I great. So, I have a little, I have a personal connection with Nightmare on Elm Street. Number one, besides 
it being one of the most terrifying things I ever saw in my childhood, but to my first cousin who lived in a small town in Mississippi with me, he now he had it much worse than I did. He actually lived on Elm Street in my small town. <laughs> At, as a as a young child, when Nightmare on Elm Street one came out, so not good for him. <laughs> Blake, <laughs> can you give us a a synopsis of Fathom, your Loch Ness uh, Monster uh, book? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, first, I've got the, the book here. This is not a shameless plug, I swear. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> I was just... I like it, though. So, oh, I do, too. And, the, and it's the same artist that designed the cover for Razor's Edge. So I'm like, I, I think I'm just going to hang on to him, you know? So, uh... uh <laughs> so Fathom is a fictional book and it's a horror novel so the Loch Ness Monster itself is more of a horror based figure in this uh, in this book so the book centers around Jack Warner he's a cryptozoologist and for those of you that don't know what that is that is a cryptozoology is the study of animals that are unknown or shouldn't exist but some think they do so it's, it's like Dr. Mouse said it's, it's slowly re-emerging to the forefront as um a part of a uh, culture, you know, and it's become something a lot of people are studying again. So um, Jack Warner's a cryptozoologist, and he's the writer of Keeper of the Lock, which is a book that he wrote on the Loch Ness Monster. So he's offered a job by a paranormal investigator named Chris McDonald. So he's going back to the lake, and he wants to spend, you know, money's no option. He wants to spend everything he can to prove definitively that there is a creature in Loch Ness, and it's of unknown origin. So he's touted this investigation as, the end-all be-all, this is the investigation of all investigations, you know, and that's why he's always uh, specific and, uh, you know, about the money not being an issue. So Jack finds himself in the in the lock, uh, you know, on this expedition, but is he going to be ready for what he finds? You know, is, is for any of them going to be ready? Uh, and that's an important question because once you read the book, you'll find out exactly what the Loch Ness Monster is, and whether or not they're ready for it or not. Oh yeah, it sounds amazing. I can't wait to check it out. I have been to Loch Ness, and in Vernus, it is an incredible place, an incredible creature, and an amazing legend. Thanks, Blake. So I'd also like to welcome our next panelist to the show. This young lady is also an award-winning author, columnist, and speaker. She is the author of the Bigfoot Lives in Idaho series. Some amazing things about her. She has 10 children, nine <laughs> grandchildren, an assortment of chickens and cats, and she much prefers to live life outside. Please welcome none other than Becky Cook Armstrong. Welcome, Becky. And, I, and honestly, I don't know which of those facts is the most impressive. <laughs> did you forgot to mention how tall I am? <laughs> I I did not mention that. So so Becky is is a is a wondrous woman. Why don't you tell everybody exactly how tall you are, Becky? So I am six foot six, and uh, 
That puts me in the top 100 women for the United States and the top 200 people for the world. Top 200 women for the world. And of course, you know, I'll probably get passed up by the younger generation as they feed them more and stretch them <laughs> more, <laughs> feed them more vegetables, whatever. <laughs> but it puts me in the same, you know, the same market as the Bigfoot. You know, I can't find shoes very easily. <laughs> <laughs> so, but... Becky and I have talked before, and it did come up about the feet because our talk was on specifically Bigfoot and Bigfoot living in Idaho. And we never did ask exactly uh, what your shoe size is, Becky, but I kind of feel inclined <laughs> to now. I wear size 14 in women's if you can find them. <laughs> Holy cow. That's that's amazing. What what? word do comes to your mind when you hear someone say cryptozoology <laughs> that i feel like that's like the catch-all terminology for for everything that's unexplained that people see and experience i would even say like things like fairies you could put fairies in that terminology just because people don't know what they're looking at or experiencing when they when they see them but you know the dragons right. and the griffins and the Loch Nesses, that all makes for interest. Oh, for sure. And Blake, somewhat, she said, crossed over into mythology. Blake, do you do you see a blend in mythology and cryptozoology? Do, do these things cross over? Well, yeah, there's a blend. I mean, certainly, um, like Becky said, a lot of people kind of classify cryptozoology as almost like a, I want to say like a receptacle, like, okay, I don't know what it is I'm looking at. So because I don't know what it is and I can't ask somebody and I don't have my phone on me to try to look at what it is, I'm going to toss it over here into this receptacle that says cryptozoology. But um, honestly, it is, the mythology part of it yep. to me is the exciting, you know, it's the exciting part. It's, uh, you know, the basis for whatever it is you're talking about, like the basis for Bigfoot or the Abominable Snowman or the Yeti or, you know, uh, the Pangbachi Hand or, or any of the stuff like that. Um, it's, it's all rooted in reality somewhere, even if it's just a tiny bit. But it becomes almost mythological and legendary as the stories are passed down from generation to generation. Oftentimes, it's used as something to bring people together. There's always We've always had that uncle, that grandfather, that father-in-law that best friend's father or even the best friend maybe that told these really awesome stories about you know something he saw in the woods and he really wasn't sure what it was but he saw it and he'll never forget the way it looked or she'll never forget seeing the eyes in between the trees or you know there's these stories so it's almost become like uh yep like just a part of our rite of passage as humans is the legacy of storytelling and mythology and I think that, that the cryptozoology element, mixing those two together, is is not a bad idea. I think that it would open a lot of people's minds to want to investigate these things a little bit further. Even like what Becky said, like, you know, the Cottingley fairy photographs. You know, though we know some of those were were hoaxed or, you know, the surgeon's photograph of the Loch Ness Monster. We know that one was hoaxed, but we didn't find out until 60 years later. So by that point, it had already become ingrained in our collective consciousness. This is what I think of when I see the Bigfoot. This is what I think of when I see the Loch Ness Monster. This is what I think of when I see fairies. You know, so it becomes part of 
part of who we are. So absolutely. That's the very long winded answer to your question, Dr. Mel. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, don't be sorry. That's a terrific answer. And you know, it makes me think, Becky, you have a lot of experience with the native Americans in the Idaho and, and that region there. What, what, how do you think they look at cryptozoology? <laughs> you know, it's very interesting. The things that they believe in, they have a lot of rules around, you know, like, like with the Bigfoot and the little people and the water babies and shapeshifters even. They have almost a full textbook of, if you run into this, then you need to do this. And, and I was told a lot of these when I started spending more time I, I was born on the reservation but um the more time i spent there a lot of people would come up and you know, out of the best interest of their hearts they'd say you know if you're out in the woods and you run into one of the little people don't make eye contact you know and make sure that you give them leave them a gift some fruit or some clothing or something like that you know and and then they the same thing like with the water babies, which is still a little bit murky as far as my understanding. But but they have a whole, whole bunch of other ones that are like, we don't even talk about those. The things like the griffins and the dragons. I um, One of the elders of the tribe came up to me and said, we keep seeing these things in the sky that are flying. They have tails. We haven't seen them up close, but they are, are up there. What do you think they are? And from their description, I said, well, I would say either a griffin or dragon. And she got very uh, upset. She said, we don't believe in dragons. Oh, wow. And I thought, now that's interesting because every language in the world has a name for dragon. And why, why would they do that if there wasn't such a thing? I mean, why would you come up with a name and just say, oh, we're randomly going to assign this to whatever. <laughs> right. So um, that just was really kind of odd to me. But um, but they are very helpful. And, and it's been very interesting hearing their take on the Bigfoot. That's kind of my specialty in the stories that I collect. Right, sure. And Blake, in your research for Fathom, and of the Loch Ness monster and the lock itself and the area, did you find? Did you come up with any surprising uh, information in your research for that? Oh, for sure. Um, there's lots of interesting things. For one, um, it, the depth of the lake always changes. It doesn't matter when you do it, um, and it's oh. odd because the lake itself is. 24 miles long, one mile wide, and the official recorded depth for it is 750 feet deep. But in the late 1980s, right before they had the Discovery uh, Channel special, Loch Ness Discovered, they found a portion of the lake near Urquhart Castle that dropped another 100 feet. So that's, that's pretty substantial because it's like if one were to approach it the way that I thought of Fathom, it's like, what if whatever it is in the lock 
whether you believe it's a plesiosaur, whether you believe it's a squidon or a sturgeon or a chronosaurus, the silosaurus, ichthyosaurus, whatever you believe it is, what if it has the ability to manipulate our existence, our existential plane? What if it can change what we know about the laws of physics for that area? And what if it can manipulate it? So what if we really don't know how deep Loch Ness is? I, I mean, I've heard 750, they found a 100-foot drop-off. I've heard it's 950, depending on where the dropout point from River Ness is. And uh, uh, near Glen Burnie and over in that area. Um, so it just, it's, it's weird. And St. Columba actually is the first recorded sighting. Um, there was a book written about his life when he came to spread Christianity over there to what he classified as pagans that they found uh, upon arrival a group of the native people or native to the area carrying a body out of Loch Ness. And he asked what had happened and they replied that the man was swimming and a great beast rose from the depth and bit him and killed him. So he actually brought one of his followers over to the loch and put them in there and said swim. And upon this followers swimming in there and causing a disturbance on the surface whatever the creature was it came up again and uh, St. Columbus saw it and he formed the sign of a cross and said I demand that you depart in the name of God um, you know this is the holy land I'm a holy man and you don't belong here and apparently the legend and the mythology is upon hearing the saint's voice and seeing the sign of the cross the creature drew back and sank out of sight as almost as if it were repelled away by religion you know by, by, the, by the, the, the spiritual beliefs of this uh, of this monk, this St. Columba so that was the first recording sighting uh, in history of of uh, what was deemed later on in 1933 to be the Loch Ness Monster because it didn't get that name until the 1930s they honestly, pardon my French, they didn't really know what the hell it was, you know they thought it was just some kind of water right. creature you know, like maybe a manatee or right. yeah, a sturgeon or just a fish. And there's one report that they said it was a frog. And I, I beg to differ on that. I've never seen a 30-foot frog before. Um, I'm open-minded. I mean, I'm very open-minded, but I've never seen a 30-foot frog. Um, so I, I honestly don't know. I don't know what what it is about the rock <laughs> itself. But like you said, that area with the fog and the cool temperature and and the way the fog hangs on the lock, you know, it, it adds to it. The natural essence of that environment adds to the mythology, you know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one thing I wanted to ask both of you and get y'all's thoughts on is that in terms of a, a field of scientific study, cryptozoology seems to be wrapped in the mysterious, of course, and, and the paranormal, it seems almost inescapable. Well, do you, as opposed to other fields of study, such as, let's just say, physics, where they don't really seem to take into account things like religion or the paranormal, even though a great deal of physics is incredibly spooky, just ask Einstein, do, do Blake and... And Becky, and Becky, I'll let you address this first. Do you think we can separate 
the paranormal and the scientific study of cryptozoology or are these two things just inexorably linked with each other <laughs> you know <clears throat> when i first started looking into the bigfoot stuff i mean i been collecting these stories since i was a kid but when i really got into earnest about collecting them for a book it was interesting how people were very divisive and said you know there's there's two different fields of study as far as they're concerned there's the spiritualist who often have seen the bigfoot have experienced them have have had interactions with them and may have even talked to them and then there's the scientific world that wants proof. They want a body. They want the hair. They want the fecal samples or whatever. It's right. very interesting to me that there's not really a middle ground there because I've seen the Bigfoot and I know they exist. I've seen them multiple times. And you're not going to convince me that that's not what I saw because I know what I saw. And... Um, so I've had people say, oh, yeah, you know, you're you're lying. And I just think, you know what? I don't lie. And if I was to tell you that it was, you know, a bear on its rear feet or whatever, I would be lying. Can't live with myself if I lie. But it's just really interesting to me that the scientific people don't often meet in the middle with the spiritualists. Because I would think, you know, if you opened your mind and actually said, okay, so maybe there's some plausible information that they can share with me. How about I set my scientific views aside and spend some time in their world and try and understand what they're seeing and experiencing? Maybe it would enlighten me in a different manner, you know? And um, I don't see that happening real much. People are either one way or another, it seems. And, and so... You know, I'll, I'll listen to the scientific guys and, you know, the, they're in there. To me, it seems like there's even a big division because there's people who will draw conclusions and call them scientific theories. And and they're, they're just a bunch of beasts. Oh, sorry. Shouldn't say that on there, I guess. Um, they just, they make up stories to fit a plausible explanation. And, um, and. I look at it, I just think, wow, that is just nuts. <laughs> but it's in the scientific right. world, and they're going to throw out a bunch of stuff, and maybe the mud will hit the wall and stick, and maybe it won't. You know, until somebody proves right. it, it's it's all up in the air. And, and Blake, I bet you've seen that with the Loch Ness Monster, too. Uh, so paranormal and cryptozoology, Blake, can we separate these two things, or are they tied... Together. I don't think necessarily they're tied together. I know that depending on who you talk to, a lot of people view these sightings of these creatures, they can view them almost as an experience of the paranormal or even almost as a, a religious experience for a lot of them, a lot of people, depending on who you talk to. But there's no denying, and I agree with I agree with wholeheartedly on the point that she made about there's, there's such a, a, a divisiveness between you've got the group that believe and then the group that says, we're not going to believe until you show us the body. We're not going to believe that we have DNA. That's the thing. We already do. People don't want to think about it, but if you go back to 1938, there was a group of fishermen out in the Indian Ocean just fishing for a catch, trying to make ends meet with the families and to hold a job down and to have, you know, 
uh, a means to an end, you know. And they netted a strange-looking fish over six foot long with spikes and teeth. They'd never seen anything like that. So, of course, naturally, they kept it and, and sent it off to the Smithsonian and so that it could be looked at. And it turns out that the creature they found was a coelacanth, which was supposed to have been extinct almost 80 million years prior to 1938. So I always say, if that case can happen, then there is a plausible possibility that these other creatures can exist. I, I, I have always believed that there is more to this world than we understand. And no one person can can understand everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that these creatures, whether they pop out of the water next to your boat, or whether you that you pass them in the forest or you see one crossing the street, they're they're there for multiple reasons. And one of the reasons that they're there is to say, hey, it's not y'all, it's not just you all. There is two life into the world than your, you know, microcosm here of what's in front of you and what goes on in the news and what's this politics, that religion, whatever. There to that. Sometimes it's okay to just say, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. That's amazing. That is something that I think that I want to see again, or that's something that has shaken my belief to the core. I was a skeptic. I'm a believer. And I guess that's the reason that I was such a fan of the X-Files. You know, because you had... Uh, David Duchovny's character Fox Mulder, who was an extreme believer. Oh yeah. And then you had uh, uh, Julian Anderson's character Dana Scully, who was an extreme skeptic. And finally, right about season six and seven, it started to turn. Uh, Mulder became a little bit more of a skeptic when it came to the belief in aliens for a time. Then he went back to being a believer, and then Scully became a believer, and essentially she stayed a believer ever since then. So I think that it's okay to question things, but it's not okay to say, well, it's not possible. It is. In 1938, they netted a six-foot coelacanth. I'm 6'4", so that coelacanth, that fish was almost as big as I am, and I certainly wouldn't want to be swimming around with it in the ocean, especially with spikes and teeth. So it, it is very, very real to me. I've seen the fossils. I've seen uh, the pictures of what they call and we had the DNA. We, we had it. They, they had a living, breathing fossil, a living, breathing cryptozoological phenomenon. And people forget about that. But I think that they need to remember. And I think it's our job as cryptozoologists, writers, and people that are believers in this phenomenon to educate others when we can and to share our beliefs. Because the truth is out there, you know, to paraphrase Chris Carter in the X-Files. And it's just our... It's our job to just understand that there is more to the world than, than our truth. Oh, there is a universal truth, you know? Yes. And there's always a smoking man out there trying to foil us too, right? <laughs> is he friend or foe? We don't we don't really know. You know, I you both bring up such interesting points and one thing I would like to accomplish tonight or at least get an idea that we could push forward is how do we counteract you know, as authors, as researchers, as enthusiasts, as believers, how do we counteract naysayers who say that cryptozoology is just a pseudoscience? We hear that term tossed around quite a bit in this field, pseudoscience. How do we, how do we counteract or respond 
two naysayers. What what should we do there? Becky, what, what are your thoughts there? I, I know you brought this up earlier. I think that a lot of people were remain skeptical until they have their own experience. And then, and then it's like, oh, holy cow, what the heck was that? I, I've actually had the opportunity to interview people like that, and I always feel like it's such a big blessing. There, there are a lot of people out there who've had experiences that just, they don't know what the heck it is, and rather than be thought a fool or someone totally crazy, they just don't say anything. And for whatever reason, I'll hear about them and, I, and I'll interview them and they'll just, just say, just tell me what you saw or what you experienced. And it's actually an opportunity to validate them and, and say, you know what, you're not crazy. But there's an awful lot of people who like to point fingers and say, well, I didn't see what you saw. Therefore, you must be crazy. And I have members in my family who are that way. You know, they, they, they think, oh, yeah, she sees Bigfoot, you know, like. Like, you know, she drank, she drank the crazy water and don't get too close. <laughs> My rub off. <laughs> and I just think, you know, you know me my whole life. I don't lie. So, you know, <laughs> take that for what it is. But I just, for myself, I feel very fortunate to have seen the Bigfoot and have had that experience. And I know that feeling of awe, just having had that experience and i know there's also people out there who have had the pants scared off on me because it you know there's that too <laughs> but yeah um anyway i think there you'll always find naysayers until they've had their own experience or until until something proves them otherwise maybe meeting me who knows <laughs> Blake, how do you think we should best respond to naysayers? Well, first, let me just say that pseudoscience is, there's a completely negative connotation surrounding that. And, uh, and they say the same thing about parapsychology, you know, and it's a way for someone to write off something that they don't understand. And I think that is a problem that we as enthusiasts, writers, believers, people that do this for a living, this is something that we see every day in some form or fashion in some measure whether small or large i mean we see oh well that's the that's the guy that writes about the, the dinosaurs that live in the water you know that's that's the, yeah that's like that's that's mr freddy krueger over there don't go over there and talk to him or go over there and talk to him he's a certifiable lunatic but you'll have a good time you know it's it, it, what it is is i think that and, and i feel like that you know feels i think she really articulated it and made a great point that until some of these people have an experience their own they're going to always feel like what we do is something that is to be poked fun at or farcical not not something that should be taken legitimately seriously but that's not true because as i said earlier and i'm sure you both know well the coelacanth is just one example uh, that was a crypt it's a cryptozoological mystery that was proven to have existed. It was alive, very much alive, way after it was supposed to not be alive anymore. So that that itself is 
proof positive that things like that can exist. If it can happen once, it can happen again. And I hear the argument over and over again about the Marianas Trench. You know, everybody always talks about, well, you know, this, that, and the other, and, you know, it's one day, no, no. We're never gonna be able to completely explore every inch of these oceans. We're never going to. Uh, the law of physics is against it. I mean, we didn't even, the Titanic until 1985, and, and you know, the pressure where the, the Titanic lies in the ocean, it's two and a half miles down and 6,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. Uh, unless you're in a submersible or Superman, you're not there, um, you know, to see it. So, uh, technology is limited, but our imagination isn't. And I think that once we keep the belief alive that there's a possibility, cryptozoology will always maintain a place in, in, in our lives and in our society because pop culture like i said with the x-files with other shows like forever night you know it goes on and on there's all these other shows culture that that keep the idea of of national keep the idea that that our science only goes far there comes a point where science and what you see as they don't mix together because logically you're not supposed to go in wood and see a Bigfoot. Logically, you're not due. They're not recognized as being an actual to some people, but to us, they are very much recognized because with our own with our own eyes and we've heard them with our own ears and we know people that have seen them and we know people that have seen the lake monsters and seen alien mad gassers and the beast of Exmoor and the New Jersey Devil and the worm. I mean, it goes on and on. World is full of these mysteries, and I think that what we do should not be taken as being personal. So, no matter if you've seen it, if you've seen it, they've seen it, or even in this. Well, I went to the, I went to the, you know, the, the store. You know, a hundred dollars in groceries. Yeah, well, I went and bought five hundred. There's always got to be that one ups another person. We're so focused on that that we, we lose the beauty and what goes on around us. We, we, we're too busy arguing with us, with each other to see the monster in Lake Champlain put its head up out of the water and spit water at us. Uh, distracted to see the Bigfoot jumping out from behind the turkeys. We're too distracted to look up in the sky and see the unidentified flying objects. We're just by other things. And I think as long as we stay distracted as a collective whole, there's not going to be a wide belief in it. But there are those few of us that keep our eyes on the water, our eyes in the woods, and our eyes at stars. You've been listening to All Things Unexplained. If you liked this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. If you would like to hear more All Things Unexplained, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about our show, you can visit us at www.allthingsunexplained.com. And if you'd like to support our show, please do visit buymeacoffee.com backslash unexplained. A special thanks to our producer, director, sound mixer, editor, and the man that wears far too many hats. No, seriously, he has a lot of hats, Dr. Tim Mounts. Without you, we couldn't keep the lights on. Thanks for listening to All Things Unexplained.